Good morning. We are jumping into uh, what is probably one of the more exciting heist stories in the entire Bible. Uh, think the Italian job, but this is the Philistine job, I guess. Uh, <laughs> and it's not gold bars, it's the Ark of the Covenant. And so probably what we should do real quick is just recap where we're at um, in 1 Samuel chapter 5. So <clears throat> uh, if you'll remember back to chapter 4, what has happened is... We are at the end of a period in Israel's history called the period of the judges. And so here I have my timeline here. It's always good to kind of, you know, kind of level set where exactly we are in history. Here our timeline begins all the way back in 2000 BC. It's a long time ago um, and runs through 1 BC. And and of course, we think Jesus and based on some strange chronology uh, fixes that happened um, a long time ago, Jesus probably born around 4 BC. (laughs) which is odd because then he lived for four years before Christ, but that's a whole different uh, issue. Um, 2000 BC is the period of what we call the patriarchs in Israel's history. And the patriarchs, meaning um, the fathers of the nation of Israel. So Abraham, probably active around 1990 BC. Of course, take all of these dates with a grain of salt. No one is sure at all that these are the exact dates. So when I say around 2000 BC, that's a, that's a general guesstimate. Um, no one is certain exactly when that was, but we think it was about around that region of 2000 BC and lasted, uh, of course, for a few years. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then Joseph. Um, <clears throat> the, the, the people of Israel migrate to Egypt and stay there for over 400 years until they leave in the Exodus, which I, I kind of um, uh, subscribe to what I call the early date theory for the Exodus, which means the period around 1450 BC. There's a late date theory that a lot of people who want Ramses II to be the pharaoh of the Exodus, they want it to be around 1200 BC, but I don't subscribe to that, so of course I'm right, and that's what you're gonna learn what I think. So. <clears throat> Exodus, we think, let's say 1450 BC. We enter a period that's called the period of the judges. It's for over 400 years. And what I kind of like to make the comment here is that think about how old the United States as an official country is. Um, you know, 200 years and change. This is twice as long as that. This period where there is no central government, there is no central bureaucracy, there is a loose confederation of 12 Israelite tribes. And what we've read through the book of the Judges and now the intro to Samuel is that is a very tumultuous period in the, in the history of God's people. <clears throat> we, have, we have moral corruption. We have religious corruption. We have terrible fighting, wars with the Israelite neighbors. And if this is the, the area that we call Israel, Palestine, Levant, or Canaan, <laughs> take your pick, um, <clears throat> The Israelites lived in and among a lot of what we call pagan cultures who did not believe in the Israelite God of Yahweh or Jehovah. And they were constantly at battle with them and at battle with themselves. In fact, in the end of the book of Judges, we read about a real civil war that happens um, between the people of Israel. Samuel, now on the scene, is the last judge of Israel. And what I mean by that is he is the last sort of anointed ruler who will lead a loose confederation of tribes in a religious and a military sense. At the end of the last chapter, when essentially the judge before Samuel comes on the scene, Eli, Eli, the judge before him, to his credit, tried his best 
raised a couple of sons who were very wicked, really kind of lost control of the people of Israel. And at the very end of the last chapter, a great battle happens between the Israelites and their mortal enemy, the Philistines. Here is Philistia. What you're not seeing here is a topographical map of the region uh, that has four names that I just gave you. But if you were to imagine, here's the coast for the Great Sea, we call the Mediterranean Sea today. The Great Coast is a flat plain, very fertile, that was inhabited by a group of people called the Philistines. The Philistines were a warlike race, probably descended from the so-called Sea Peoples of the Late Bronze Age, and they had mastered the use of ironworking technology, and they were very formidable on the battlefield. They were a great threat to the people of Israel. The, the Hebrews, or now Israelites, um, are living in this region here that's really hills and mountains. And so if you've ever been to or lived in a region that has mountains, you know that often a plain will give way to foothills, will give rise to mountains. <clears throat> this are foothills and then essentially mountains that rise up in Judea, we call the Judean uh, 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 hill country. The people who live here, the Israelites, are constantly at war with their Philistine rivals. In the last chapter, we read about a great and crushing defeat that happens to the Israelites, in which up here, and if this is Philistia, right on the edge here where the battles happen, there was a great battle near the town of Ebenezer, in which the Israelites were completely crushed by the Philistines. And go back to the last video or to chapter 4 if you'd like and, and listen or read about that. The point is the people did not seek God's guidance or counsel in how to deal with the Philistines. They just simply assumed that they were just going to go out and destroy their enemy without seeking any kind of guidance from God. <clears throat> As you might imagine, that battle was a crushing defeat. Tens of thousands of people were killed. And in, in doing that, the Israelites made a very poor choice to think that they could bring the Ark of the Covenant to the battlefield and somehow win the battle magically. I make the case every week that items of holy worship associated with God are not magical objects. Holy water is not magical. The Ark is not magical. The ephod, or breastplate, that the high priest wears is not magical. The umim and thurimim are not magical. I could keep going on and on. The objects themselves have no magical power, like in Harry Potter. God chooses to protect items that he considers to be holy and righteous, and he demonstrates his power around those objects. So, if you'll remember back... Um, <clears throat> When the exodus happened, God manifests himself as a giant pillar of fire or a pillar of smoke in order to demonstrate his power to the Hebrews. He, on Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai, when giving the Ten Commandments, manifests his power as lightning and thunder and wrote the Ten Commandments with his hand into stone. The Ten Commandments are not magical objects. Moses, who brought the Ten Commandments down, was not a magical being. God chooses to reveal himself powerfully, and we would say supernaturally, through people and items. And so they have no inherent magical ability. This was completely lost on the people of Israel um, around the turn of the millennium. And this idea that they could just take their most holy object, which in this case would have been the Ark of the Covenant. Yes, that Ark from Indiana Jones. Uh, <coughs> 
is the, the, essentially the container that at that time would have contained the original Ten Commandments and was essentially the footstool of God and the meeting point at which God met with the Israelites on earth. It was essentially the interface between heaven and earth in which God would come down and meet with his people, essentially, and to continue the, the covenants that he had established with them. Well, during the, the horrible times of the judges, the people of Israel started to forget what that ark represented. Not a meeting point or a holy place where you came to commune with God, but some kind of powerful object that could lay waste to our, our enemies. Why would they think that? Why would they think that the ark could be used as a magical object? What history do we know that would make us think that? When they crossed the Jordan. I love you, sweetheart. Because, you know, I, she, I don't pay her. She just, she just knows this stuff. Joshua comes into the promised land 400 years earlier and is told that they need to destroy the city of Jericho. What do they do? They march around the city of Jericho as instructed by God for seven days with the ark and blow their trumpets. And when they blow their trumpets, the walls of Jericho come crumbling down and the city is given into the hands of the Israelites. Of course, if you are hearing bits and pieces of history, you will start to think the Ark must be some kind of magical, powerful object. Uh, it's a weapon, and I can use it against my enemies. What is lost on them, of course, is this connection with Jehovah. So the Ark is brought from its resting place for over 300 years, which is a town called Shiloh in Israel, and it is taken to the battlefield near, near Ebenezer. The battle is lost. The Philistines capture the Ark of the Covenant and take it back with them. And in the process, Eli's two wicked sons, who are part of this terrible scheme, die, as predicted in prophecy. And Eli, when hearing the news, not that his sons have died in the battle, not that his nation has lost a terrible battle with the Philistines, but that the Ark of the Covenant has been captured by the Philistines and is in the hands of their, their horrible pagan enemy, drops dead. He falls over and breaks his neck and he dies. Thus ends the second to last reign of a judge of Israel, and essentially we are now in the period of the final judge, Samuel. But the ark is in enemy's hands, and today we are going to learn all about uh, that and that heist and what happens um, to the people. And so I would like us to <coughs> read chapter 5, and it's a short one, so I'm going to ask you please to read chapter 5, verses 1 to 12, who would like to do that? I can, that's right. I was going to take that. Um, well, you can read it. Go ahead. Okay, I'll read it. <laughs> She's like, finally, I get a short one. Yes. <laughs> okay. When the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face, for, face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not treat, tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. 
The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of, of the God of Israel? They answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of the God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of, of God to, to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. <laughs> they sent, therefore, and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. <laughs> there you go. Thoughts, reactions. I just love how they're like, why are you bringing it over here? <laughs> Don't bring it here. Isn't that something? It's a great story. It's good, isn't it? Yeah. And they say the Old Testament is boring. Well, this isn't. <laughs> I love that the in the temple that that God causes their yeah. idol to fall and have his hands break off. And Let's talk about that. Yeah. So, who is Dagon? Dagon being one of the gods that were worshipped by the Philistines. Dagon, dag, is thought, means fish. And we know that the Dagon god was represented as a half-man, half-fish creature, which probably had the upper torso, a head and arms and body of a man, but the lower half of a fish. Now you're thinking to yourself, that sounds ridiculous. Well, that's how it works in antiquity. Um, <clears throat> gods were thought to be these, these fantastic creatures that were amalgams sometimes of earthly items or, or, or objects or living things. Dagon probably came from Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia, as you recall, earlier in history is where Abraham came from, from the city of Ur. This is the land between two rivers that today is called the modern country of what, in general? Iraq. So, 3000 BC, or two, you know, between 3000 and 2000 BC, there's this god called Dagon that is, that is worshipped. Eventually, as you recall from ancient history as well, these gods become popular. They uh, start to be worshipped in other regions. Dagon is thought to be the father, well, not thought to be, he was said to be the father of Baal. Who is Baal? Baal's god. Another bad god from the region that will be really bad for the, the Israelites in a few hundred years. During the period of the divided monarchy, Baal worship will become a horrible, persistent cancer uh, amongst the Israelites. And in fact, at one point, an idol to Baal is set up in the temple of Yahweh. We'll get to that. That's, that's later. But you can see here that this was a powerful um, <coughs> uh, influence upon the Philistines. If you read the book of the Judges, Samson, famously, as one of his last acts, his last act, 
was to destroy the temple of Dagon in a different city of the Philistines. You remember what, uh, what city that was? It's one of the underlined ones. <laughs> so this was in Gaza. So, real quick history lesson. Philistines were essentially um, another loose confederation of city-states in which there were principally five city-states that were powerfully in control of the whole region, and each city-state had a king associated with it. The five principal cities here are Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, Gath, and Ekron. These are the, the five major cities, and of course they controlled the region. <clears throat> A few years earlier, we're not exactly sure when, Samson has destroyed the temple of Dagon in Gaza. Now, we're talking about another temple in Ashdod. Of course, you could have temples all over the place. It wasn't like the Hebrews that had one temple. Let's talk about the, the very interesting detail about what is happening when the Ark is brought in. Why would the Philistines bring the Ark of the Covenant into the Temple of Dagon. Yes, they're going to put the Ark, and forgive my, my poor representation here, you know, with the, the cherubim, their wings. You know, here's the Ark. Let's just say, goodness gracious. Um, <clears throat> they put the Ark in front of and kind of, you know, remember, Dagon is going to be on a pedestal. Any god in a temple would be on a pedestal. That's the way it works because they are lifted up or edified so that you can worship them and look up in reverence and awe. The ark would have been placed in front of it and probably in a lower position, exactly what James is saying, to show Dagon has won over your puny god. Okay? What happens to the, temp, uh, to the idol of Dagon? First. Falls face downward in front of it. What does that represent to you? It's worshiping. Yeah. Jehovah is not without a sense of humor, folks. <laughs> and I like to say you are created in the image of God. God has a sense of humor. First of all, he made me, so he must have a sense of humor. <laughs> Second of all, he goes, dude, uh, I'm not the one serving you. You're the one serving me. And the next morning, and, and what I like about God, too, is that he, is, he doesn't go to DEFCON 1 immediately. Often he likes to give you warning shots to kind of give the message, you know, I'm not going to destroy you yet. I'm going to send a very strong message and let you figure out what I'm trying to tell you. The first time, all that happens is this, this, this idol falls over on its face in front of <laughs> the, the Ark of the Covenant. Now, now, if you are a priest of Dagon and the next morning you're coming in to that temple, and let me tell you, you've partied the night before. Like you've never partied before. Why? Because you won. You won, and you can't wait. Hey, you guys want to come see the Ark of the Israelites in the temple? Under our God? Dude, it is awesome. And they've been drinking, right, all night. And they're like, dude, we are going to go. So they bring their friends. And they come in. Okay, you guys, you're going to love this. And he opens the door of the temple, and what do they see? Oh, blank. <laughs> the thing is over. Now, on its own, the fact that the idol has fallen would be a huge disgrace to the worshipers of that God. Make no mistake about it, especially in a major temple, in a major city in which this isn't some household God that, you know, <clears throat> I slammed the door too hard and it fell off of its little pedestal or something like that. No, no, this is a really major object in the middle of a huge temple. 
It has broken and fallen off. And you're seeing it in front of the Ark of the Covenant. There is no, <laughs> there's no way you can really interpret this any other way, right? Except to say, if you're a religious person, something has happened in which this God has broken, it has fallen off, the Ark is totally fine. And, and maybe it wasn't so close, you know, because it's like smashed over here. The religious interpretation is, this God won the battle with this guy. Make no mistake about it. This is a battle of deities. Folks, we had a battle of armies a few days or weeks earlier. This is a battle of gods. And God is sending a very clear message here. I win. He lost. How many priests do you think died over that deal? Because if oh, you don't look... That's a good if, one. If your view is through the eyes of oh. Dagon, mm -hmm. then somebody has knocked this over. Somebody... Mm -hmm. It's got to pay a price. And somebody's heads are going to roll over this deal. I like this. This isn't, this isn't the God that this art belongs to, this art. This is some, you guys, maybe you did get a little too tipsy. What did you do last night in here? Yeah. And I feel like, you know, this is not a small thing. If this falls over, there would be some sort of rumble or something, and they're probably like, well, how did we not know that this fell over in the first place? I don't know. And then when it says they put, it just says they put it back in its place. Well, this also would require a lot of people. This is to not move just. It it's not okay. just. It's up again. Right like now. five pound thing. Like this is yeah. like probably a, you know, eight foot tall statue at least. So, and is, so this is an idol, but is it also the the devil, right? Or is it is it a being? Yes. That is an excellent question. This is the God. Now you have to remember that um, <laughs> what we have today, we get, we get spoiled today on images of religious figures. So if you see a picture of Jesus, I think 99.9% .9 of us look at that and say that is an image of Jesus. That is not Jesus. Jesus is in heaven, you know, he's, he's, he's separate from it. Um, <clears throat> the Philistines would have regarded this idol as their God, the living God, okay? Now, <clears throat> it's weird and it gets into this whole metaphysical thing about is this the only place the God is? Well, no, obviously they have um, different worship centers where the God is located, but you can, you can regard this as the physical representation of the God. So the God physically himself has been toppled. And that's an excellent point. Like, so there's a, so there really, is there a spiritual battle where God is, um, overtaken the devil, I don't know what else to call it, but the evil being, evil... Oh, I see what you're saying, I see what you're saying. You know, like, yeah. or is it, is this not real, it's just an idol and there's really is no spiritual evil behind I will say, this I will idol. save this discussion for another day. Okay. I think this is a black hole. Um, there is no indication here in Samuel that this is Satan himself or this is an actual okay. demon. Now, do you, you know, if you are a believer, do you discount the fact that there is spiritual warfare going on? Well, there's definitely spiritual warfare yeah. going on. I mean, you can make no mistake about that. Um, but it do kind of doesn't matter. Yeah. Whether this is Satan or whether this is a demon or, you know, or, or what is it just, you want to you know, call with it. The, you know, devil in the eating yeah. evil in the people themselves, there right? You, you know, spiritual realm around yeah. that, but I, did, I didn't know. 
Either way, God wins. Yes. Right? You you can you can say the conclusive evidence is whether it's a, a spiritual evil or it's just a physical piece of wood, it certainly is not a God. You can you can believe that. God is one. This is only the first night. <laughs> this is only round one. And God likes to do this. There's a round two, and we know what round two is. The second time that this happens, something far worse happens. Now they come in on you know, the morning of whatever day it was in which the second round happens, and they see something far worse. Now, this idol has not only fallen over, it has broken, but it has broken very specifically, and this is a really good one. What has happened to the idol itself? It broke. It broke, Head but how? Head cut off, hands cut off. Love, I love this drawing. <laughs> okay. The head and the hands are broken off. This is fascinating, folks. We just got done listening to a, um, a really comprehensive um, review of the history of Egypt. And um, in it, the, the uh, author of this, uh, this course or this series makes the, the statement that when the Egyptians went into battle and they they won the battle. The way that they would account for how many people were killed was not just some guy going through and counting how many dead people, one, two, three, four, right? It's a, it's a mangled mess. Um, you might miscount, you might see, you know, it's a man, mash of arms and legs and all this other stuff, and you might miscount. Um, you know, counting was not very accurate back then anyway. How would the Egyptians know what the actual tally of the, of the casualties were? they would go to each body and cut off the hands and take the hands and throw them into a pile. Okay? So, so the, you know, the, the soldier's uh, job was go out and cut all the hands off of all of the, of the corpses that you find. Once the hands are in a pile, and it's gruesome, but this is how they did it, they would then count the hands. And they would say, you know, based on the number, let's say, of right hands that we counted in the pile, that's how many of the uh, of the dead that there were, and in doing so, there might be two piles. There might be a pile for the you know for the Egyptians. There might be a pile for the um, for the enemy, and then we can know exactly how many people died on each side. The other thing that you do when you go through a battlefield is you make sure that people are actually dead. Okay, now you can imagine uh, in an antiquity uh, in a battle, it's probably like today. After a major battle has happened, there's a battlefield full of dead and dying people. Not everyone is dead. It's a horrible scene. Um, there's, there's wounded, they're sick, um, they're, they are bleeding. Some of them might not be dead, but you want to make sure that they're dead. If they're wounded, they're of no use to you. If they're alive and they're still healthy, you might take, you know, in, in most cases, you would actually capture them, take them back, and they would become prisoners because they're useful. But if they're wounded, you're probably just going to let them die or kill them because they're of no use to you. <clears throat> you would cut their head off. By cutting their head off, I am proving they're dead. Now, I don't know anyone who has lived with their head cut off. Um, you can stab them again, you know, in the guts, but how, you know, you could live uh, potentially, uh, or at least live for a while. There's one surefire way to prove a person is dead, you cut off the head. So, what message is God sending by cutting off the heads, the heads, the head and the hands of Dagon? He's really dead. <laughs> What'd you say? <clears throat> He be dead. Dagon be dead. No question. Dagon dead. Dagon dead. Fishy died. Okay. 
What kind of panic do you think begins to spread throughout the people of the region at this point? Remember, these are, these are ancient peoples, folks. They see things and they see signs and they can get freaked out about it. Well, like Dagon was the god of their town and he was, you know, in charge of protecting them and keep, keeping them prosperous and mm-hmm. helping them to win wars and stuff. And if their god is, you know, dead on the floor, no. he's not going to be protecting their city and making them prosperous. So they're probably... And already they get a new superstition yeah. of not standing on the doorsill because, like, maybe because we stepped on the doorsill, yeah. this happened. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. It's a curious reference in Zephaniah of God condemning people who are leaping over the threshold of the temple. And, and scholars look at that and they go, that is a very interesting way to say that. It's the only other place in the Bible where that's really mentioned. And we hear it's mentioned too. Leaping on or probably um, in the Hebrew, a better way of saying it is, is over um, the threshold. Um, it, it, it suggests that something happened that, that permanently changed the religious practices of the Philistines and potentially even the people of, of God themselves. That somehow, and this is a very obscure thing, that the threshold now of the temple is something that if you step on a crack, you break your mother's back. It's exactly the same thing. How superstitious are people in 1000 BC? Well, they're very superstitious, folks. And they see this and they go, I'm never going to do this again, right? Because I don't, I don't want to walk under a ladder. If a black cat crosses my path, I'm screwed, right? If the mirror breaks, it's exactly the same thing. Superstition. What else happens? Now, after all this has happened, you can go, this is, this is pretty major. What starts to happen amongst the people of the Philistines here? Tumors. They start to get sick. They start to get sick, and tumors is a very specific description. Now, <clears throat> think, uh, you know, as a biblical scholar, you read the, the Bible, and you start to think in your mind how disease is, is referenced in the, in the Old and New Testaments. <clears throat> Tumors is a very specific description that doesn't appear a whole lot in the scriptures. And you have, to, you have to say to yourself, this is a very specific affliction. Now, it's not just tumors. What happens to people who have the tumors? Let's see if it says here. In verse 11... So they called together the rulers of the Philistines and said, Send the ark of the God of Israel away. Um, Let it go back to its own place, or it will kill us and our people, for death has filled the city with panic. I have a footnote about the Septuagint. It includes the... um, 50,000. Oh, of the groin. This is the groin thing, isn't it? Well, it includes hemorrhoids. Yeah. And in the midst, and then the Septuagint has a quote of "In the midst of them in the land, rats sprung up, and there was a great death panic." Yep. And so then they have like a asterisk with the bubonic plague. Yep. Oh, you gave it away. I was going to talk about I'm that. Sorry. <laughs> That's, okay. That's okay. Yeah, we'll talk about that in just a minute. Um, I want to. I want to make the point though that there, we have a specific disease mentioned. We have. Death happening from the disease, and now I'll just get to it. I'll just I'll get to it because it's out of the out of the out of the box. Sorry, it's all good, bro. That's why we're here. You're part of this, so I'm part of this. It's all good. In chapter six, as we'll read, 
they'll end up making models of the tumors and the rats that are destroying the country. Okay. Rats plus um, <clears throat> tumors plus death <laughs> equals what? We just, we just said it. There are, there are many scholars that look at this and go, this is an outbreak of bubonic plague. Bubonic plague. Again in chapter 6, and I'm just going to jump ahead and then we'll read the whole thing. In chapter 6, verse 13, now the people of Beth Shemesh were harvesting their wheat in the valley. Harvesting their wheat. Folks, the Bible is an excellent historical reference. The fact that the author has, has pinpointed when this is happening is really critical. The people of Israel tended to harvest their wheat in a very specific time of year. They harvested it in late spring, May to June. Um, they often grew this thing called winter wheat. They would plant it in the fall. It would, it would overwinter in its rosette stage or you know, in, a, in, kind of a, um, uh, in kind of a quiescent stage over the winter. And then in the spring, it would rise. And there was other kinds of wheat too that would, be, that would be planted in the spring in very early spring and then grow and mature by late spring. Point is, the people of Israel tended to harvest wheat during the time of Pentecost. And Pentecost, as you'll remember, is the first you know, um, great festival after Passover that is a celebration of the initial grain harvest. So we're, we're very sure that whatever is happening is happening in late spring, let's say May or June. I want you to, so that's, your, that's a first very important clue. Think back to how long, <clears throat> how long was the ark in Ashdod? see here. Where do we have that clue? Oh, it's actually in 6.1. When the Ark of the Lord had been in Philistine territory for seven months. Here's another clue. So, it's been in, in Philistine territory for seven months, ending in May or June. That means that if you backtrack seven months, you are left with late fall as the time when the Ark was captured. That would make total sense from a historically uh, warlike perspective because you don't go to war in winter. You just don't do it. Um, it's raining, it's cold, in the mountains it's snowing. Um, it's, it's hard to get food to people. The roads are a mess. You go to war in, in spring through fall. So that would fit historically with what would happen. That means the ark is sitting in the land of the Philistines over the winter. What do people tend to do in the winter? Get fat. They get fat. What else are they doing? Are they out in the countryside? They're staying inside. inside. They're staying inside. What are they doing with each other? Gathering together. They're huddling together. They're not socially distant. <laughs> what? That's exactly it. And again, um, when people are all together in close quarters in 1000 BC, sanitation isn't very good. Cleanliness is not very good. Um, they're not bathing. Right? You're not going to go out into the, the freezing stream and take a bath. They're dirty. What happens in those kinds of conditions? Disease spreads. Disease spreads. Look, God can act any way he wants. You don't have to pigeonhole him into an explanation that makes you feel good because you want a scientific explanation. But this would absolutely fit with an epidemiological explanation that there was some outbreak of a plague that was spread by rodents. And the people that were experiencing it were dying as a result. Folks, this fits great with the bubonic plague theory. 
and remember, uh, it, well, maybe you don't remember, maybe you don't know, um, bubonic plague um, and pneumonic plague, they tend to, <clears throat> when you get those, those bubons or those, those swellings, they tend to happen in places that are very private. They happen in your armpits, they happen in your groin, they happen in you know, your backside. Um, because they are your lymph nodes that are essentially exploding from the disease attacking them and your body shutting down and, and you bleed to death and you die. Sorry for the gruesome de description here. Um, that would again fit with what the authors of the Septuagint seem to have been on to, which is this is not just any boil or, you know, you know, you don't just have this thing on your face. It's, it's something that's happening systemically to your body. I, you know, look, I'm a scientist. I think that's fascinating. Uh, maybe that's not exciting, but... Uh, that's 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 the thought. Okay, let's go on to chapter six, and we'll just read it because we've been talking about it. I just wonder how we'll uh, look back to this time, hundred, two hundred, however many years in the future. I just don't know. Yeah, it's just interesting. You can't tell when you're in the midst of it. It's hard, isn't it? Mm -hmm. When you're in the midst of the action, to look at the whole thing. But okay. <clears throat> Chapter 6. We'll save that for a future. Yeah. Uh, chapter 1. Let's read the whole thing. Let's read 1. And actually, we're going to read to chapter 7 because, again, the, the divisions are not very good. We're going to read chapter 6, verse 1, to chapter 7, verse 1. Who would like to do that? I can do it. Thanks. So the Philistines kept the Ark of God in their land seven months. Then they called for their priests and magicians and said, What should we do with the Ark of the Lord? Tell us how to send it back home. So the priests and magicians answered, If you send back the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it back empty. You must give a penalty offering. If you are then healed, you will know that it was because of the ark that you had such trouble. The Philistines asked, What kind of penalty offering should we send to Israel's God? They answered, Make five gold models of the gross of your skin and five gold models of rats. The number of models must match the number of Philistine kings because the same sickness has come on you and your kings. Make models of the gross and the rats that are ruining the country and give honor to Israel's God. Then maybe he will stop being so hard on you, your gods, and your land. Don't be stubborn like the king of Egypt and the Egyptians. After God punished them terribly, they let the Israelites leave Egypt. You must build a new cart and get two cows that have just had calves. These must be cows that have never had yokes on their necks. Hitch the cows to the cart and take the calves home away from their mothers. Put the Ark of the Lord on the cart and the gold models for the penalty offering in a box beside the Ark. Then send the cart straight on its way. Watch the cart. If it goes towards Beth Shemesh in Israel's own land, the Lord has given us this great sickness. But if it doesn't, we will know that Israel's God has not punished, punished us. Our sickness just happened by chance. The Philistines did exactly what the priests and magicians said. They took two cows that had just had calves and hitched them to a cart, but they kept their calves at home. They put the Ark of the Lord and the box with the gold rats and models of the gross on the cart. Then the cows went straight towards Beth Shemesh. They stayed on the road, mooing all the way, and did not turn right or left. The Philistine kings followed the cows as far as the border of Jeshemesh, Beth Shemesh. Now, the people of Beth Shemesh were harvesting their wheat in the valley. When they looked up and saw the Ark of the Lord, they were very happy. The cart came to the field belonging to Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped near a large rock. The people of Beth Shemesh chopped up the wood of the cart. Then they sacrificed the cows as burnt offerings to the Lord. The Levites took down the Ark of the Lord and the box that had the gold models, and they put both on the large rock. 
That day, the people of Beth Shemesh offered the whole burnt offerings and made sacrifices to the Lord. After the five Philistine kings saw this, they went back to Ekron the same day. The Philistines had sent these gold models of the gross as penalty offerings to the Lord. They sent one model for each Philistine town, Ashdod, Gaza, Ashkelon, Gath, and Ekron. And the Philistines also sent gold models of rats. The number of rats matched the number of towns belonging to the Philistine kings, including both strong-walled cities and country villages. The large rock on which they put the Ark of the Lord is still there in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. But some of the men of Beth Shemesh looked into the Ark of the Lord, so God killed 70 of them. The people of Beth Shemesh cried because the Lord had struck them down. They said, Who can stand before the Lord, this holy God? Whom will he strike next? Then they sent messengers to the people of kirath Jerim, saying, The Philistines have brought back the Ark of the Lord. Come down and take it to your city. So the men of kirath Jerim came and took the Ark of the Lord to Abinadab's house on a hill. There they made Abinadab's son Eliezer holy for the Lord so he could guard the Ark of the Lord. Thank you. Thoughts? I also always laugh when I hear that they were moving the whole way. Like that just delights awesome. me, I have to say. Because it's just so funny Thank you that, for that they had historical added, note. You know yes. that they added that. Like that's you know, there's a lot of things in the Bible where like, oh I wish this was in here, you know. But they added that the cows were moving cows all the way. That's it. You know, yeah. it's just funny. Well it's, they went through a lot of trouble to test God and make sure that it was God. I mean taken the cows that had just had calves that would under under no circumstances just walk away from their cat their calves yes you know and they used they prepared the offering by using new wood you know for the cart and just a bunch of stuff their little idols and their golden offerings rather they just went through a lot of trouble this is a wonderful example of a great scientific experiment that was actually very well thought out in science, the, the, the goal is to test what you call the null hypothesis. I want to test whether there is no difference between what I'm seeing and what I would call a control. Okay, That's the null, the null hypothesis is there is no difference between what I'm testing and what, uh, and what usually would happen. Okay, Exactly what Jeremy is saying here. They actually thought this out very well. They wanted to prove that, that this was God and God alone who was working this and it wasn't chance. It wasn't a fluke. It wasn't some kind of bias based on uh, poor experimental design. Folks, this is science right here. This is science. And, and what happens? The cows who should have run right back to their calves didn't. They didn't. The, the cart is taken to a new town straight away on a path uh, with cows that have never been on a path. They've never been yoked, so they've never done this before. And, and one conclusion you can make is this is not a fluke. This is, there's something influencing the cows. And again, folks, I love to say this part too. <clears throat> Much to what you may have heard, science is not about measuring what you can see and touch. Most of science is about measuring what you cannot see and touch. No one has seen an atom. No one has seen the interior of the earth. No one has actually seen uh, the inside of a black hole. However, all of, of, of science is about testing <clears throat> The effects of those hidden phenomena. That is science. You test theories of the atom based on its effects. No one has seen gravity. 
How many of you have seen a gravity wave? I haven't. I can't raise my hand. I'm just asking. You've never seen a gravity wave. How do you measure gravity? By its effects on people. I just did a scientific test. Gravity had an effect on the pen, right? You can measure God and his effect on humanity by his, by his effects on people. Here, folks, we have a legitimate scientific result. Something influenced those cattle to drive themselves to Israelite territory. The conclusion is, this is not a fluke. Conclusion is, something drove those cows there. Thoughts? I was thinking, uh, they probably never did this test on Dagon, did they? <laughs> like that. Oh, well, it's not written. So yeah. They own it. Yeah, yeah. That's good. I like that. That would have been an even better test, right? Let's have two yeah. cards, right? And, and see where they go. Also, that they are, they, you know, the story of what God did to the Egyptians is well known, mm-hmm. even this much later. Yes, hundreds that, of years later. I mean, hundreds of years later, it is very well known, and they say, let's not be stupid like the Egyptians. Like, we're not going to wait till there's ten we're the plagues. We're people of Jericho. We, our one plague is bad enough. Yeah. We'll just, we'll go with that, and yeah. we're going to send the ark on its That's way. That's it. God, God likes to use plagues, right? And, and it's very powerful. <clears throat> You know, it's, it's kind of interesting, too. So the Philistines take the ark, and you can bet that they're looking at it and looking at it and mm-hmm. examining it and all these things, and nothing's happening to them. Mm-hmm. The minute the Israelites get this ark back, you know, some clowns <coughs> think that they can look in it, and God lets them know real quick this is not... You know, you've made this ark an idol, and you've used it for your own devices. You've taken it into battle because you think this ark is winning the battles for you. And I'm not a god that you can direct to your own devices. And you know, 70, 70 people were killed because you know they disobeyed the way God said this ark is to be handled. And that's the difference between Israel and the Philistines. The Philistines, you know, they didn't know anything about this ark. To them, it was just like Dagon or just like anything else. Um, Israel knew better. And God kind of let them know, hey, it's time to get back to the right track. I like that. Handle this the right way. I, I will say that maybe to your point about nothing was happening, there was, obviously, um, uh, although the Bible does not record that when the, the Philistines looked in the ark, they dropped dead. They, they very well could have. We do know, um, I totally believe they were doing that. Um, they were suffering, but they were suffering from a different affliction. In this case, they were, they were suffering from disease and death um, <clears throat> brought on by that disease. But this is my point that I made at the very beginning is that it, this is evidence the, the ark is not a magical object. Again, I get back to that. Because the punishment, and I agree with you on this, the punishment for the Israelites was different. He didn't afflict them with the same thing. So you can't say the ark is like a radioactive thing, right? It doesn't cause tumors in all cases. What happens is that the audience matters. In the case of the Philistines, he has a very specific affliction that he is going to, to, um, to punish the people of Philistia for. But, but absolutely 100% agree that when it came to the Israelites, 
no, no, no. God's like, no, I'm not going to punish you with tumors. I'm going to make you drop dead immediately. Because of this very fact, you did not honor my ark with reverence and holiness. As I told you in the law, if you look back to, I think it's Numbers, <clears throat> Numbers maybe 420, God says, don't look in the ark. Don't touch the ark unless you're a Levite priest. Um, cover the ark. Don't look upon it. Uh, there's very specific things here. If you don't follow my law and my rules, you're going to pay for it. And you might say to yourself, looking back on this, this is a very harsh thing, right? And, and later in, um, gosh, I think it's in 2 Samuel, when the ark is finally moved to, to Jerusalem in about, oh, I don't know, 70 years or so, the ark will be on a cart being transported and it will start to slip off and someone tries to go and grab it to stop it. And you remember what happens to that poor fellow. He drops dead. Again, you might say to yourself, what a harsh thing. The guy was trying to stop the ark from breaking. No, 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 no. The ark's not going to break if God doesn't want it to break. He said, don't touch it. <laughs> and, and what we don't know either is his intentions. You know, <clears throat> we don't know for sure based on the text that the thing was actually toppling over and he went to grab it. All we know is he put his hands on it while it was being transported and that was a no-no and God killed him. And you might say to yourself, that's harsh. Well, you know what? <clears throat> God has rules and you follow those rules. And if you don't, you suffer for it. I'm sorry to say if that makes you upset. That's the truth. This whole, like when you were talking earlier about the warning <laughs> shots, it reminded me of like when we were studying Genesis and like you were calling it the long path or the slow path to knowing God, right? Like God revealed himself slowly to Abraham yeah. <clears throat> and he didn't expect Abraham to know everything about him right away. Like yeah. he just slowly revealed himself and, and built up their relationship with each other. And, and slowly over yes. all this time through being in Egypt and through, you know, the Exodus, he's revealed them himself very clearly and gave them the law. And so they know him very well. He has not done the same thing to the Philistines. They don't know God yeah. that well. And so he doesn't need, they have different rules. I like this. Yeah, I Because like this. he hasn't revealed they himself to right. them in the way that the Israelites, they mm -hmm. know God and know how powerful he is. And yeah. they know what What does that are. tell you? What does that tell you about you should know better? <laughs> you know, the interesting thing is that, so you have these Philistines who, like what Laura said, it's not... God has not revealed himself to them. And yet they have the intelligence to actually put together this scientific experiment to test this. Meanwhile, you've got the people over here who have been revealed to. No. I'm going to look in it. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, seriously. Thank you. It's totally true. And I think that sometimes God, he was using <clears throat> this to reveal himself in a way to yeah. the Philistines. And in a way then they, they did realize that, oh, our God is subservient to the God of the Israelites. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to sum up what we're saying. First, I'm going to say our lessons here, God's law, or more specifically his rules, matter. <clears throat> we should follow or honor God by following his rules. If he tells you to do something a certain way, you do it. I, I don't know what else to say here. Um, <clears throat> it also kind of shows his mercy to the Philistines that he didn't just, you know, he's not, our, if you don't know him, then he doesn't just, like he didn't immediately just kill the Philistines. This is it. Mm -hmm. He actually gave them a chance to kind of know him, you know? 
Absolutely, 100% agree with that. I think God lets us know he says what he means and he means what he yes. says. This is a big one. Why? Because life is a slippery slope, folks. And the, the biggest problems that humans get into are the sum total of the slippery slopes that end up with you in the bottom of the pit. It's, it's one thing to say, don't touch the ark, don't look in it, you should revere it. How easy is it for human beings to go, meh? Well, the thing is, is that, so God is sovereign. Yep. He is the, he's at the top, right? He's responsible for the outcome. When I try to short circuit that and become responsible for the outcome, which is exactly what we're talking about here with, with studying the art, or, you know, and what I'm really trying to do is replace myself and put myself in God's position. And I'm trying I to love set this. myself up in my little world I love it. as the highest authority. I agree 100% with that. So it must be right. Very good. Also, it can be pretty, you know, maybe not letting, not touching the ark was maybe seeming minimal to to the people, but yet if God says something and you you do it, it it could mean the difference between life and death. Maybe not right at that point, but this sin leads it. to death. <clears throat> Look. The ark is just an ark, folks. It's, it's, a, it's a box of acacia wood covered in gold with some rocks in it, okay? There is nothing special about the ark. I'm just gonna say it. There is really nothing special about the ark. The only special thing about the ark is that God says it's special. It's easy to get lost in the, in the details. And this is exactly the sin that happened to Israel to lead them to where they are right now in this story. They forgot the big picture. God is to be revered and honored and consulted before you act. The, the Israelites forgot all of the big picture stuff. And folks, God is a big picture being. He is a strategic thinker. The Israelites got caught in the details, the fragments, the pieces, the minutia, to the point where they started to see the ark as some kind of special thing. And they thought they could use it to, to destroy their enemies. And now that the ark is coming back, they thought they could, you know, grab it and hold it and look inside and let's see what's... Look, the big picture here is not that the ark is some kind of special thing. The big picture is God needs to be honored. God needs to be revered. He is God of the universe. And that's what he's trying to get them back to. And I love this part about mercy. Again, I, I love this because this is true. Folks, he could have killed everyone on the battlefield that day for even bringing the ark there. He didn't. The ark was in the Philistine territory for seven months. Seven months. While he slowly and maybe increasingly tried to make the point that they needed to repent. Folks, in the history of all the judges, what is, what is the common theme over and over? You have done wrong. You haven't honored God. You need to repent. If you do that, things get better. And, and God gives us so many chances, folks, so many chances over and over and generation to generation. You have done wrong. You need to repent. You need to admit you were wrong and come back to honoring God. And if you do that, things will be fine again. God will reward you or, or, or bless you <clears throat> to some degree. 
Well, look at how the ark got into the Philistines' hands to begin yep. with. I mean, it was a cycle of disrespect yep. and disobedience yep. and dishonoring God. And they get the ark back, and the first thing they do is disobey God's rules. Yeah. And if God wouldn't have done anything, mm-hmm. yeah. It, it, number one, it's, it would be completely out of his character um, not to have done something. Yeah. Um, but you know, you might you might look at okay, seventy people dying. That's a pretty harsh penalty. Mm-hmm. Well, if, if he doesn't set set yeah. things in the right course again, it's just going to continue this yeah. cycle of disrespect and disobedience. Mm-hmm. And oh, God doesn't really mean what he says. Yeah. You know, if your intentions are good, could be. You know, they wanted to look inside there to see, okay, what did these Philistines steal? Mm-hmm. You know, what did they take out of yeah, the ark? Yeah, that's fair. You know, it's probably, mm-hmm. you know, who knows what's in there. we got to make sure it's all right. Yep. I'll give them the benefit yep. of the doubt. But they didn't have the right to do that. Right. I think that's fair. I mean, God said that only the Levites could right. touch the ark. Well, and not just Levites. It had to be a special mm-hmm. Levite, right? Mm-hmm. You had to be a descendant of Aaron. Mm-hmm. And so... If God doesn't uphold that, then he's not God, mm-hmm. right? He has rules. If he doesn't uphold them, then there's no point in following him. Right. Right? Like it's This is the thing, folks. God's, God's truth is absolute. I know in this day and age that is a really tough pill to swallow. There are right answers. <laughs> there are. This is not the subjective, relative, depends on what you feel and how you think. That determines truth. Not according to the Old Testament. Now, you might not like that. You might say, I don't accept the fact that there is objective, absolute truth in the universe. I want to believe that it's all relative and I can believe whatever I want and human perspective is different so it just depends on how I feel and that's okay. Well, you can believe that. That is not the message of the Old Testament. Well, you think why would God allow the Ark of the Covenant to be captured in the first place? Yeah. Well, again, as we've been talking about, it's another example of disobedience Mm -hmm. And um, well, the people not following, but because if you're, well, if we have the ark, we're invincible. We can yeah. we can defeat anybody. If we don't have it, I guess we're not invincible. And but you're right. You get the ark back. Now they'll listen. That's why we talked about last week. The the book would have been a little thinner here <laughs> if yep. uh, people listened the first time. That's exactly it. And Tim, I I totally I want to kind of expand on what you just said, which is. You know, I think for over 400 years, years, God continued to let his people off the hook. And to some degree, there really was no permanent damage done by the people and their apostasy and their sin. That bad things would happen. Don't get me wrong. They'd have to all go run to their caves because, you know, um, you know, another Canaanite tribe came along and burned their crops and were trying to kill them. But they would repent. They would call out to God. He would raise up a judge. And the judge would, would defeat the, the enemy and things would be good again for 20 years and on and on this went. But, but here, I think, we finally have the breaking point. We have, finally, the worst probably possible outcome you can imagine. Um, and I think God did this for a reason. He finally let it be a breaking point. He finally said, look, the course that you're on with this repeated me letting you off the hook over and over is not really getting across to you. You're not getting it. Yes, I've been merciful. I've been merciful for over 400 years. I didn't have to be. The page could have been one page long. I'm going to, boom, you're done, right? 
but he had a bigger purpose in mind. And I want you to think about how you apply that to your life today. How many times has God let you off the hook? <laughs> the fact that you're still alive and breathing and here probably means he's let you off the hook a few times. Okay? I'm just going to be honest with you. But there is going to be a breaking point at some point in your life, whether you want to admit it or not. Maybe it's happened already, or it will happen. That at some point, the damage will be so great that things will change for you one way or the other. Now, in this case, and how much time do we have left here? Six, five after. It's five after? Oh, so we have minus five minutes. Uh, And I'll wrap this up very quickly here, is to say I think you can make the the case that, that they've had it. God has had it, and the people have had it. They have lost their ark, and now it's come back, and it ain't in Shiloh. And folks, it's probably... Very likely, Shiloh was burned to the ground after the, after the Philistines took it. Why? Because now that they've got it, they had the advantage. Army, the army of Israel was wiped out. They probably went back to Shiloh and destroyed it. The tabernacle was probably either damaged or it could have been destroyed or it was in a hurry. The important objects were grabbed up and they were taken away um, <clears throat> and, and taken south for, for safekeeping. So Shiloh, the home of your temple for 300 years is gone. Your ark has been captured. A whole bunch of your military has been wiped out. It really is a breaking point. And I think this is the point about mercy. There are certain amounts of mercy that God will, will put up with until he says it's enough is enough. And he's going to allow something much worse to happen. Now, again, you might not like that. That may be something that upsets you. That's the way it works. Well, but like- it's all for good. So yeah. he killed 70 of them because yeah. they did what he had told them not to do. And then, but the people in Beth Shemesh, they say, who can stand before the Lord, this holy God? Who will he strike next? Like, this is so arbitrary. Mm-hmm. It's not our fault. If God is so, like, random, he's just going to strike whoever he wants, kind of. And I'm like, and then they're like, let's go dump it off at Curathurium. And so they're still, like, not learning the lesson that God told them, like, He's giving them a warning by killing only 70 of them, and then, but they're just blaming it on God when they need to be looking at themselves, like, yeah. why did he do that? And it's not fair for us to end today without, without the final piece, and I'm going to read it from chapter 7, and we'll read it again next week. This is the response that Samuel has for the people after this utter defeat. It was a long time, 20 years in all, that the ark remained in Kiriath-Jerim. And all the people of Israel mourned and sought after the Lord. So already, it's starting to change. And Samuel said to the whole house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all of your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So what happens? The Israelites put away their bales and their Ashtoreths and they serve the Lord only. It worked. Big picture is the point. It says so right there. <laughs> ah, that's it. So it must be true. All right. We'll see you all next week. Thanks for joining us.